Thanks for tuning in to Mountain View Fellowship's weekly podcast. At MVF, our mandate is pointing people to Jesus by fostering relationships. We know Jesus cared for people and placed a lot of emphasis on relationships. So we do too. We believe that we're created for relationship with God and that He gave each one of us a desire to belong. If you'd like more information about MVF, connect with us at mvfcolorado.com. Now, stay tuned for this week's message. We are in the middle of a series called 10, or assuming that the coffee hasn't set in yet, uh, just X. So whichever one you prefer. Uh, the whole point of this series is that we are looking at the original Ten Commandments. We want to look at and figure out what each of the Ten Commandments looked like back when they were given, as well as what they look like for us today. Because if the Bible is still relevant, we have to understand that these commandments still have something for us today. So that's what we're doing. Uh, if you were here last week, Don talked about the first commandment, and Mike talked about the second commandment. The first commandment was have no other gods before you know, our God, and the second commandment was all about how we shouldn't have idols. Now, like everything, like all people groups everywhere, these commandments were given to the Jewish people, and the Jewish people had a tendency to complicate things. Anyone else make something more complicated than it needed to be this last week? We have to understand that the, oftentimes we complicate things that don't need to be complicated. See, God intended the Ten Commandments to make his people set apart. Uh, he wanted them to be a lighthouse to the rest of the world, showing them which God they should follow. Because everybody believed that they had the one true God, right? But the Jewish people actually had a God that kept physically showing up, time after time after time. And so his point was that his people needed to be a lighthouse on the shore of an insane world. Now, that being said, the Jewish people looked at the original Ten Commandments and were like, those ten are really good, but how exactly do we do those ten? And Mike will get into this more, but basically, and in short, what they did is they just added a whole ton of extra laws. Now, God intended the Ten Commandments to create and build intimacy with his people, to create a relationship, and for them to get closer to him, all they had to do was follow the Ten Commandments. All they had to do was follow the heart behind the Ten Commandments. But the Jewish people got so caught up on what the lettering said and what the laws that they were making up said that that made it impossible for them to actually have a real relationship. In fact, they created laws and punishments for what would happen if you broke one of the laws that they made up based on the Ten Commandments. Uh, there's actually a really cool quote uh, that I was told about yesterday. Uh, Ravi Zacharias, I believe is how you say his name. The reason we have 17,000 pages in our law books is because we can't follow 10 lines on a tablet of stone. Like I said, the people back then, and then me in pink shirt, we have a tendency to complicate things. So we're looking at the original Ten Commandments and trying to understand what they might mean for us today. Now, I have the pleasure... Uh, of speaking on the third commandment. And if I can be honest with you for just a moment, uh, I was kind of a little disappointed I got this one because it was like the senior pastor who may or may not be my father was trying to tell the youth pastor something about how much he should be talking. 
I don't know. It might, I, maybe I'm reading a bit much into that. But what I found out is that there's way more to this commandment than meets the eye. So before we jump fully in, we're going to have some guys come up and down the aisles. If you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand. They're going to give you a Bible. We're not going to ask for your name or anything like that. We just want to make sure everybody has the chance to own a Bible. So uh, that's what they're doing. But before we fully jump two feet into this, I want to say you'll notice in this commandment as we read it that there's like a comma and then there's like a consequence for not following that commandment. Now, I don't have nearly enough time to get into what the consequence for this commandment is, in detail at least. My, my guess is a lot of you who've uh, lived your life more than, you know, two years have already experienced some of the consequences yourself. So I, I don't feel like I need to go through what the consequences look like. Instead, I'd rather focus on how it is we can follow this commandment and what it actually looks like for us to live by this commandment. So with that being said, we're going to open up our Bibles, page 51, and we're going to read what the third commandment is. <clears throat> it's a long one, so hang on to your boots. You must not misuse the name of the Lord your God. That's a commandment. That's all it is. You must not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Now, at first, it may sound like, well, you just don't cuss. I mean, don't, don't use God or Jesus' name in some angry slur, and you're fine, right? But there's so much more just under the surface of this. Uh, but to get to that, we need to once again talk just a moment about what the original intent for the Ten Commandments was. Remember what I said. The purpose of the Ten Commandments was to set his people apart and to make them a lighthouse, God wanted to have a relationship. So God gave the laws to his people in order to set them apart. That was the first thing. And so that's, I think, the first thing we can learn from this scripture. Is that we're supposed to be a lighthouse in every area of our life, including our speech. We're supposed to be set apart by following God. And by following God, we're supposed to look different even in the areas that we use just like everyone else, like our language. It's not just about cursing or using God's name in a slur. Because here's the thing, and this is, this is really important and critical. You have to understand that words have power. Every word you say has an impact, positive or negative. All words have the power to help heal wounds that are hurt. Help heal things that have been dug deep into us. Power, they have the power to help somebody overcome impossible odds. Words can literally help someone heal physically from things that have happened to them. Words have power, just like words also have the power to destroy someone. Perhaps it's happened to you where someone has said something that just shook your world. And whether it's, you know, I'm not ready for this relationship or you're fired, words carry impact and meaning with them, every last one of them. Either way, you have to understand that words don't just have power, they have that power and it carries on. People will carry those words with them wherever they go for the rest of their life. I mean, there's an actual love language called words of affirmation that has to tell you something, right? We as Christ followers have to understand that our words have an impact. 
Jesus says in Luke chapter 6, verse 45, what you say flows from in your heart. So the natural question I get to ask now is, uh, what's in your heart? What are your words telling about your heart? How are we representing our life, our passions, our priorities to other people based on what we say? And I don't know if you guys know this fully or not, but if you claim Christ as Savior, there are people watching you, looking at you, trying to analyze who you are. And if your words look exactly like everyone else's words, if the way you handle situations verbally is the exact same way that somebody else would handle situations verbally, there may not be that much difference. And they may not be interested in finding out about our God. This is why singing praise is so powerful. Have you ever been in a corporate setting where kids, where people, where adults, where anybody is just singing out loud praises to God and you can hear them over the band? It's powerful. One of the videos I posted from our trip to CIY Move with the high school was just 1,500 students praising God so loud that even at the front, when we were next to the speakers, it was easier to hear everybody singing behind us than it was to hear the band in front of us. There's no way you can be a part of something like that and not be changed. This is why when somebody writes you a letter, you can feel connected to them. This is why when you hear a song that just perfectly hits where you are in life, you feel connected to the artist. You're like, that artist understands what I'm going through. Words have power. And this commandment is not just about not being ugly. It's about praising God with every breath. Every word that comes out of our mouth is either a praise or a hindrance to God. All of these things are words in use. All of them flow directly from our heart. And like I already said, all of them, especially if you're a Christ follower, tell everyone around us all they need to know about our God. Now, I also find it very interesting how the scripture says you must not use the name of the Lord your God. The name. I wondered why they put that in there. You see, the Jewish people had tons of laws surrounding God's name. They had so much reverence for it, they wouldn't even say it. They made up a word for God. Yahweh. It was like a breath. They didn't even want to even begin to think about misusing God's name, so they just didn't say it. Now, that eventually led to kind of the exact opposite in our culture, but I'll talk about that in just a second. You see, names are powerful too. Most cultures assign a name based on experiences a person has, or if there's a significant event in someone's life, your name changes, or that person's name would change. We don't have it to that extent here in our culture. I, we kind of do. Uh, when we get married, oftentimes somebody's name changes, most of the time. But names are still powerful, and I can prove it. You ready? I bet right now you can think of somebody... Think of a name, and that person makes you smile. Like, thinking about their name, you actively are like, that's a good guy. I really miss her. Man, I wish they were around a little bit more. 
You can also, and perhaps maybe a little bit easier, think of a name of a person that you can't stand to be in the room with. I heard some chuckles there. (laughs) Hit a nerve. If I were to say that name and say, they're coming to your house, you might be like, oh, no. Uh, My grandma is dying yesterday in Nebraska. I gotta go. Sorry, can't make it. Like, names tell stories about the people in our life. Names are powerful. To know someone's name is to know them or to have a relationship with them. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, it says, ask in my name and it will be given. This is Jesus telling us that if we ask for something in his name, it will be given. So even God recognizes that there is a power in name. I mean, beyond just the third commandment, right? Now, I said that the reverence had kind of changed. It was the opposite in our day and age. You see, the Jewish people had so much reverence for his name that they wouldn't even say it. And so the next generation would come along and they'd be like, well, I don't even actually know God's name to begin with, so it must not be that important. And all of a sudden, you had a generation of people fall away from God. And a cycle repeats itself. It's, it's kind of a vicious cycle in the book of Judges if you want to read that. Uh, but in today's culture, God's name is more akin to express frustration, disappointment, or being frustrated with something. Maybe it's just straight sarcasm or annoyance, but whatever phrase or whatever way you, put, you pitch it, God's name oftentimes is not used in the everyday workplace in what I would consider a very positive light. Is that how we want to represent our gods to others? Our God to other people? Because here's the thing, other people don't exactly know what they're saying, they just know it, it carries some meaning with it. But we as Christ followers, we understand that saying those things is, is having an impact on what other people think about our God. How is it we should represent him to those around us? Let let me ask this question. If every word you'd spoken for the last two weeks was written down in a transcript without any names attached to it, would the person who read it be able to tell that you were a Christ follower? Would they come closer to knowing Jesus or would they think you were more passionate about something else in your life? This is where we can draw a very distinct line between the third commandment and the first two. See, God wasn't just wanting us to not cuss. He was wanting us to use every word we speak to honor him. He's trying to communicate that Christ followers and children of God have an opportunity to inspire the people around them with the way they speak and with the words that they actually use. We have to use opportunities in our life, in our everyday life, to help people see that God is real and is with us. Look, I'm not putting it all on you like it's your job to save every last person you talk to, but what I am saying is you can have an impact You can help influence people closer to knowing God or further away. So which one do you want to do? 
See, if we don't use our words, every word, every situation, to bring glory and honor to God, then technically we are breaking the third commandment. Look, there is, there is neutral stuff in between. I'm not saying that every word has to be praise Jesus, but what I am saying is if we are acting like the rest of the world is, there's something wrong. Now, how is it that we can actually get better at following this commandment? Because it's hard. We use language all day long. Literally everything we do is started, followed, or completely involved in using language, correct? I doubt there's anything that you do in your normal day that doesn't involve communication with someone, So the question is, how is it that we use something so often? How can we be held accountable for something like that? I thought of three simple things that you might be able to put into practice. You don't have to use all three. Uh, You you could use just one or two or whatever you want to do, or you can modify. I don't don't even care, but my, my goal was to try to find an easy way for us to remind ourselves that the language we're using reflects who others see Christ as. The first one is, is pretty easy, and all of you are already rolling your eyes at me because every last one of you carries your cell phone everywhere you go. So that was me yanking the rug of the excuse out from underneath you, right? Look, it doesn't have to be some loud, buzzing, amazing grace ringtone every 35 minutes, all right? It can be... <laughs> Thank you. It can be just a silent vibrate in your pocket once every couple of hours, once a day, twice a day, but something that draws your attention and makes you go, man, is the language I have been using honoring God or not? And then it gives you an opportunity to think about the next couple hours. Man, I have to go to that meeting with Tim and ah, I just hate Tim. And by the way, if your name's Tim, I'm not actually talking about you. This is an example, all right? Just an opportunity for you to stop and think about the words you've used and the words you're going to use. Another thing that you can do is have someone keep you accountable, right? This is the, class, the classic Christian accountability one, right? But this one's harder with words because you almost have to have someone who you're around all the time to keep you accountable. And not only that, but that person kind of has to have the same goal as you. That is, you know, you both want to get better at using language to honor God and not be so negative, Now, you could have two separate accountability partners, right? You've got your wife or your husband at home, and I'm sure in some portion that they're already kind of keeping you accountable a little bit. Uh, And then you can have somebody at work, right? Somebody who sees you more during the day, who can help you go, uh, when you're about to say something dumb and they know you're about to say something dumb, they can stand across and go, "Mm -mm, mm-mm, mm-mm. Oh, you did it anyway. Right, and then they can come up to you after. He's like, "I know you saw me. Mm-mm. You got You got to listen to that, right? And you guys can talk about maybe in the future. These are other things that you could say, right? There's lots of ways that this can be applied. It doesn't have to be the super awkward meeting once a week to where you sit down and you have to analyze everything. It's an ongoing process. In fact, I would argue it has to be an ongoing process because we use language so often and it's so ingrained in us. The third and final thing is that you could actually wear something. Or keep something in your pocket. Uh, I know a lot of our men have these challenge coins in there, in their pockets. 
just reminding us what putting on the armor of God is supposed to look like, right? There are things like this that you can buy on Amazon that are cheap that could remind you, hey, people are watching the words that I'm using. How am I, how am I doing? You could get one of these little bracelets. I know men are like, I don't know if I want to wear a bracelet, but there are some manly ones out there, I promise, right? Anything that you can look at and see and have remind you, hey, the words I say need to be positive. Now, I want to challenge you guys to do something this coming week. And this is going to be a hard challenge. I know it up front, but uh, I, I, I have faith in you. You can do it, right? Uh, this coming week, I want you to, to not just like not cuss, to not use God or Jesus' name in a frustrated sense, but but instead to change the outpour of your heart. And that's hard because literally that means that you have to start looking at situations differently. If you're like me, there's this uh, hesitancy and this natural instinct to like look at the glass, not just half full, but it's half empty and full of poison, right? Like you don't do it. You look at people, here's a good example. This last week, I had been trying to call my doctor because I need to get an appointment like two weeks ago. But like every phone call with Peak Vista, I'm on the phone and I get transferred to Kiowa because Kiowa is, is where their phone number goes, even though it's 622. So I'm talking to a lady in Kiowa and I'm like, hello, I would like to speak to a receptionist in Strasbourg, please. To which she responds, you know, like the normal person, okay, can you confirm date of birth, you know, your address, your social security number, credit card number, can you tell me when your mother's maiden name's birth date was, like all this stuff, right? And I, I do it. I'm, I'm very nice, I'm frustrated, but I'm nice going through all of it. And I've gotten really good at doing it fast, by the way. So get through that, and the lady's like, okay, what would you like to speak to the receptionist in Strasbourg about? And I said, that's... For me to talk to her about why do you need to know that to which she responded oh I just need something to tell them and I'm like okay I would like to talk to them about an appointment oh did you need to schedule an appointment I could do that here no I, I know you can do it here in three weeks but I'd rather talk to the lady in Strasbourg who can do it like by the end of the day oh so, so you don't want to talk to me you'd rather talk to the one in Strasbourg yes please okay let me transfer you thank you to which I get transferred to the one in Elizabeth. I could have used words better on that phone call. I'm not going to lie. And I'm sure there are situations in everyday life to where your perspective has to change. It's not that lady's fault, right? I, I try not to be angry at those people, and I get it, but, but I have to remember that I'm representing God with even just the attitude that I put out. So this week I challenge you not to just shift the words that you say, but rather to remind yourself that you're representing Christ so that the outpour of your heart brings glory and honor to him. In the uh, late 1800s and the early 1900s, um, coal mines in Pennsylvania used to use mules underground. And the mules would move around the ore carts and different equipment and things like that. 
And so companies, for both safety reasons as well as to save money, they started to build stalls underground for these, these mules. And so the mules would stand underground and work six days a week. And on the seventh day, they would bring them back above ground and put them out in pasture and stuff. And the thought was so they would uh, not go blind. Well, there was a company that decided to kind of tweak this a little bit to maybe save a little bit more money and a little more efficiency. And so they started to leave the mules down underground all seven days of the week. And it didn't take very long, and they found that uh, it significantly decreased the mule's lifespan. It decreased their willingness to work. It decreased their strength, and they did go blind. It's kind of cool when secular wisdom and findings match biblical truth, isn't it? The fourth commandment is about keeping the Sabbath holy, and so that's what I'm going to talk about for a few moments here. And if we turn to Exodus um, chapter 20... Uh, we find this. We see, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. And on it you should not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day, Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. The Hebrew word Sabbath means rest. And as a bit of a wordplay, the Hebrew word for, the, for seventh sounds a lot like Sabbath as well. When we read Scripture, we don't really come across the Sabbath until Exodus 16. And that's when the Israelites were starting to wander in the, the wilderness and God was starting to send manna as a way of being able to feed them on a daily basis. And at that point, God said, for six days of the week, you'll go and you'll collect the manna. On the sixth day, collect a double portion. Because on the seventh day, you're not to go gather. There won't be any, any manna for you. Instead, you'll rest and you'll eat what you already harvested. When we think of the Sabbath, I'm, I'm sure a lot of us have different mindsets on it, but it tends to be of a lot of what we don't do, right? What we're not supposed to do. Uh, kind of this list. To be honest, the scripture is actually pretty short in the list of do nots on the Sabbath. The list is we're not to gather food, we're not to light fires, we're not to gather wood, nor are we supposed to carry carry heavy burdens or pursue our own affairs. That's it. The list is actually pretty short. In just these few places, it talks about what we're not supposed to do. On the positive side, the what are we supposed to do on the Sabbath, it's really short. We're supposed to rest, and we're supposed to have a holy convocation. In other words, we're supposed to be some part of the Sabbath that we're doing something holy, something different to spend time and have an experience with God. Now, there's a problem with these lists. They're not very explicit. It's pretty short. Don't work and rest. And as Hunter was mentioning, a lot of times us humans, we complicate things. We like to figure out, well, what does rest really mean? What does not working really mean? Define it for me. Because we're trying to find that, you know, the gray areas, the places where we can maybe change things and move it and and manipulate it to become our own. Well, in Jesus' time, the Pharisees at that point had come up with this huge list, hundreds of things that would mean what it means to rest and what it means to not work. In fact, they went to the place that they figured out 39 categories of actions 
that would be work. And so they had this so defined that, that it was pretty prescriptive what you were supposed to do on the Sabbath. They had some problems, though, with some of those definitions. One of them was, for instance, that they said uh, a warrior couldn't carry a sword on the Sabbath or any kind of weapon because that would be carrying a burden, right? Well, during the Maccabee Wars, um, there was one time where over a thousand Jewish warriors were massacred because it was on a Sabbath and they had no weapons. Well, the Pharisees saw a problem with that and they, they tweaked the rules just a little bit. And they said, it, it's actually okay for a warrior to defend themselves, but they can't do any offensive things. Well, that tweak came to bite them in the butt a little bit later. You see, in 63 BC, the Roman uh, leader Pompey invaded uh, Israel and went to Jerusalem, and he found out about that rule. And so what he started to do was he had his, his soldiers build their siege works against the walls of Jerusalem on the Sabbath when the Israelites would do nothing. There's also other things that these list of rules started to cause, uh, some problems. One of the categories is you're not supposed to have marital intimacy on the Sabbath. Another one is you can't tie knots. Well, these two are actually related. You see, back in those days, uh, ladies had to tie knots for their undergarments. And on the Sabbath, they couldn't tie their undergarments anymore, which led to a temptation for marital intimacy. It was kind of a strange tie. So, again, the Pharisees tweaked it, and they came up with a list of knots that were okay. They were ones that could be tied with one hand or untied with one hand, so they weren't much work, right? That kind of list of coming up with things to kind of work around what the intent of the Sabbath still exists today. I don't know if you know this, but many of your appliances actually have kind of a secret or hidden Sabbath mode. Uh, stoves, for instance, some of them have a mode where you can, you can get it in Sabbat mode or Sabbath mode. And what happens is the night before, before the Sabbath starts, you put your food inside of it. It sits in there. And then sometime during the Sabbath, the oven will turn on and cook your food. You can't set an exact time because that would be forcing work to happen. But if by random chance the oven just turns on and cooks your lasagna, you're, you're good to go, Right? But they also override something on, on Sabbath mode because if you open the door of your, your stove and the light turns on, that would be lighting a fire in one way of thinking. So in Sabbath mode, none of the lights or the buttons turn on, okay? And you'll find this mode in things like, again, stoves and, and refrigerators and washers and dryers and a lot of different things. Well, when Jesus came and started his ministry, he saw that men's hearts were wrong about the Sabbath. All of these different rules made it so burdensome for people. Nobody looked forward to the Sabbath because it was all about what you're not supposed to do and staying right instead of what you were supposed to do. And so Jesus spoke up against this. He said, yes, what sorrows awaits you experts in religious laws, for you crush people with unbearable religious demands and you never lift a finger to ease the burden. He was talking about the Pharisees and all these things that they had put in place that kept people from really being able to worship God on their own terms. In Mark 3, 4, Jesus turned to the Pharisees again and said, Does the law permit good deeds on the Sabbath? Or is it a day for doing evil? Is it a day to save a life or to destroy life? 
and they wouldn't answer his question. You see, Jesus sometimes when he taught, he, he brought things to extremes for us to be able to see a point. And his point in this series of questions was actually to bring out the great commandment. Great commandment is we're supposed to love God and love others. And that commandment lasts all week long, including the Sabbath. And he was trying to point that out, saying, look, if you aren't doing things on the Sabbath because you're afraid it's work, but it's actually a problem or committing evil, then you're breaking what you're supposed to be doing. You see, if you dishonor your neighbor, then you're dishonoring God. If you're leaving your neighbor in suffering, then you're doing evil. And neither of those have a place on the Sabbath. So what is the Sabbath supposed to be? Well, Jesus clarified that and he said, the Sabbath was made to meet the needs of people and not people to meet the requirements of the Sabbath. In other words, the Sabbath is God's blessing for us. It's not a cramping, life-denying, constraining thing. It's supposed to be not a rigid set of arbitrary rules, but actually an occasion for us to spend time with God in relationship. Now, if you're like me, Sabbath is actually difficult. In my 15 years of ministry, I would say that Sabbath is my most consistent spiritual weakness. It's hard to take time off and rest. I mean, most people consider Sunday kind of their Sabbath. Sunday for me is a half day of work, right? It's, it's kind of a work day. So I'm not able to do it then. So I got to schedule a different time during the week for it to be my Sabbath. And more often than not, I allow things to kind of overtake that. Uh, I was kind of excited to get this topic to talk about it, thinking that it would give me another opportunity to, to work and improve. But even this week, I realized halfway through my Sabbath that I had spent most of my time actually preparing to talk about Sabbath versus doing it. And so if you want to pray for your pastors or any, anybody in full-time ministry, missionaries or whatever, this is one of the things that we get tripped up so often on because we see the need of everything that needs to be done and we jump in and do it instead of resting and refreshing. I think part of it for me is I think again about Sabbath being a duty instead of a devotion. And perhaps that's the secret way of us being able to maybe recapture Sabbath. Exodus 31, 16 says it this way, Therefore the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. This is a retelling of the commandments, but there's something different here. He talks about it being a covenant, an agreement, a promise together. And at the end, he also talks about how God himself, when he rested on the seventh day, was refreshed. That seems so much more like a blessing, doesn't it, than just something that we have to obey and follow? So I think renewing our relationship with God is a better way to think about Sabbath. A consistent attitude and a regularly expressed action of our relationship with Him. To recover the Sabbath, I, I kind of look at it as four things. To stop, rest, delight, and focus on God. And we're going to walk through these. And if you haven't noticed, during this series, we're, 
we're kind of breaking up each of the commandments a little bit, and we're going to be heavy on application because we think that's what's so important. We all probably know the Ten Commandments in some form, but it's the, the doing of it that makes the most important. So that's what we're going to spend time on. To recover the Sabbath, we stop, start with stopping. Blocking out some time on your schedule. Now, Sabbath is supposed to be 24 hours a day. But if you're like me and you have a hard time, perhaps you can start with, with taking kind of a baby step or an initial step and just blocking out four to six hours on your calendar that you protect. You make it untouchable time that you aren't able to schedule anything else on top of. So that's the first thing, making sure it's on your calendar so it happens. And again, it doesn't necessarily have to be on Sunday. Next, you rest. When you start your Sabbath, kind of first assess where you're at physically, mentally, spiritually. If you're coming in and you're on fumes, if you're completely wiped out from the week, then spend that time to actually rest. Take a nap, relax, sit, do what you need to so that you can be refreshed physically. If you show up and it's more you're mentally tired but your body's able to do something, then, then go do something. Go find something to do that, that allows you to find refreshment and renewal that way. And that brings us to the second thing, or the third thing, delight. Ask yourself the question, what gives me joy and delight that will refresh me and be life-giving, will help me thrive? So you may enjoy playing basketball. I'm not sure basketball completely fits in Sabbath because it's not necessarily focused on God, which is our last point we'll get to. But perhaps something like that, that you're active in doing, is okay. Now, to help you kind of figure out maybe some things that are joyful and delightful to help you, there's also these things called the spiritual temperaments. There's nine kind of categories that, that someone's come up with. And these are basically different ways that people connect best with God, how you kind of feel God's presence when you do them. It kind of starts out with uh, the naturalists. Uh, these are people that just being out in nature, taking a hike or something, brings you close to God. Or maybe you're an intellectual. Maybe it's reading scripture and studying deeply. Maybe engaging your mind is how you feel closest to him. The sensates are more the artistic type, the ones that lean into their senses. So maybe it's good food. Maybe it's candles. I don't know what it is. But something that engages your senses that then you feel alive and you feel like God is right with you. The traditionalists kind of lean into maybe how they, they experienced God in church before. Maybe it's things like doing communion or, or a set of, I don't know, special devotionals or prayers or something like that you're working through. But that sometimes draws people close to God. The aesthetics are those who like solitude and quiet. You know, long ago they might have been the monks, but there's some of you who just sitting and being quiet. You feel close to God and you feel him with you. The activists are those who pursue justice in an injustice world. In other words, they jump in and they take care of God's causes in the world. And when you're doing that, when you're battling injustice, that's when you feel God right there with you. Likewise, the caregivers, people who are just serving somebody else, spending time with them, providing a meal, something like that, that draws you close to God. The enthusiasts are those who like excitement and celebration. Perhaps it's singing praise music really loud or dancing or some sort of celebration that you do 
so you experience God and you experience his joy. And the contemplatives, those are ones who just want to be in God's presence, adoring him, thinking through and reflecting on who he is. As I went through these nine, maybe there's one or two or three of them that in your mind kind of tweak you and go, man, I I think I might be this sort of person, and, and that is when I feel closest to God. So to help you with your Sabbath, your Sabbath doesn't have to look the same way. I mean, sometimes we also have this view of kind of monk-like life on a, on a Sabbath, quiet, just reading scriptures, not doing anything. If you're a traditionalist or a, an ascetic, or that may be a great thing for you to do. But if you're an enthusiast and an activist, you'll be like, man, that, that's just boring. So find something that's going to find you joy and experience it and jump in. The key, though, is whatever you're doing has to do the last thing, which is to focus on God. So there is an element of praying and studying and meditate on some verse that that should be part of this as you're doing other things. And there's a period of reflection, reflecting on God's love and how there are different gifts of his hand that he has given us to pull us closer to him. We can look intentionally for God and his grandeur and everything from people to food to art to babies, sports, hobbies, music, whatever it is. You do these things and you focus on him, that'd be a great Sabbath. There was about a year period a little while back that I had a fantastic time of Sabbath every week. And what I did was it kind of worked into some of these spiritual temperaments It was on a Thursday. I'd schedule the time in the morning. I'd wake up and I'd read some scripture and I'd be thinking about that and praying about it. And then I went and volunteered and worked as a stock boy at a food shelf. And it was a very busy food shelf and my role didn't necessarily have me talking with people very much. I just needed to make sure as the hundreds of people went through that there was always things on the shelves. But as they did that, I spent the whole time in prayer. I could see these people walking in and realize that there were different stories involved. And sometimes I'd get to talk with somebody and sometimes it was just, again, me working. But I'd spend the whole time in prayer and thinking about the scripture that I had read before. And then when I was done with that and my shift was over, when I left, I kind of assessed where I was energy-wise. And if I had energy, then I'd lean into my naturalist side and maybe go on a hike or go play a round of disc golf by myself. But the whole point was I was still praying and enjoying God. So technically, I guess from a Pharisee standpoint, I was totally breaking Sabbath. I was working. But from a point of view of doing something that wasn't about myself, that allowed me to focus on God and allowed me to find some joy and renewal, it absolutely was Sabbath. And so I suggest to you that maybe that's what you need to do is to find that new way of looking at Sabbath and jump in. You see, because kind of like those coal mine mules, if we don't have Sabbath, we will go blind. We'll go blind to what is important to God. We'll go blind to the provision and the blessing that he provides to us. We'll go blind to what's essential. We'll go blind to what's important instead of now we'll probably focus more on what's temporary. This morning, as part of our finalizing our holy convocation, if you will, our time of Sabbath together, we're going to enjoy having communion. And so I'm going to ask anybody who volunteered to help serve communion, if you'll go ahead and head to the back and start to prepare. 
God created us to spend time with him. He desires relationship with us. That's what he wants more than anything. You see, God wants us to have both quality and quantity time with him. The quality time is throughout the week when we're having quiet time with him and spending time reading maybe every day for a little bit. But he also needs that quantity time, and that's what Sabbath brings. Thanks for joining us here at Mountain View Fellowship. We'd love the chance to meet you in person. We gather each Sunday at 9 and 1045 a.m. at 1955 Headlight Road in Strasburg, Colorado. If you aren't able to join us in person, we'll meet you right back here next week. God bless. Thank you.